Father, again, we thank you for just the fact that as believers in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can call you Father, that you have made us part of your family, that you have adopted us into your family. We thank you for your irresistible grace and your effectual call. And though we may have rejected at first that you won out, that uh, ultimately we turn to you uh, because you are more powerful than us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came in obedience to your will, that he came to sacrifice himself on our behalf, that uh, he was the acceptable substitute, the acceptable sacrifice, that's on the cross he paid the internal the entire penalty for our sin, that at this time he is even interceding for us at at the right hand of of your throne. And Father, we thank you also for sending us your spirit, that as the Lord Jesus ascended, that the spirit of God came, that he is working in our lives, that he gave us life to believe, to have faith, to repent, that indeed it's the Spirit of God that continues to work in our lives so that we continue down the path of growing and sanctification. Uh, we know that what you have begun in us by calling us, you will complete by your Spirit by bringing us ultimately to, to glory and glorified. And Lord, for all these things we are very, very grateful. We know that it's your work, not ours, and yet we want to be part, the part play that you want us to play. And, and Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom, especially as we look at this text today, uh, that we make it our aim, our goal, our ambition to be pleasing to you, and that we would recognize that there is a day coming that we're going to give an accounting. Uh, Lord, so may we understand your word and it would transform us that we would live uh, lives that are truly pleasing to you, that are not only our actions, but our motivations would be pleading, pleasing to you. Uh, give us wisdom and also the power to be transformed for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Dr. Jeremiah, this last week, well, by the way, you can be, uh, if you want to turn in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9, and actually 9 through 11, we'll be looking at those verses today. I'm, I'm continuing down this path of this chapter because uh, it just meant a lot to me in the last few months, and before we get back into Revelation, I know we've got missions conference, and then we'll get back into Revelation sometime, second part of October, I guess. But Dr. Jeremiah asked the question, imagine landing a jet on a rolling deck of an aircraft carrier in the pouring rain in the middle of the night. And and we've all seen the the fighter planes as they come into the, the aircraft carriers. It's complicated, but it boils down to a single request from the landing signal officer to the incoming pilot. And this is what he'll tell them, call the ball, call the ball. The ball is a round light shining towards the plane that the pilot uses to line his plane up with the carrier's deck. When the pilot sees the ball and is confident of his path, he responds, ball. From that point until he lands, he has one life-saving task, keep his eye on the ball. You know, when it comes to the Christian walk, it really is not that we keep our eye on the ball, we keep our eye on the prize. And the prize is Christ. We find that in Philippians chapter 3, that Christ-likeness and keeping our eye on Christ and knowing that it's going to be Christ and it's going to be before him and the, the Bema seat. We're going to be looking at the Bema seat today, the, the judgment seat of Christ. And how do we keep our eye on the ball, on the prize? In fact, we're going to be looking at two things that we should keep our eye on. Okay, A chief goal... And the greatest motivation, though that's basically the outline. We're going to be looking at how Paul kept his eye on the chief goal, that's verse 9, and his greatest motivation is verse 10. You know, if you think about those fighter planes, again, at night, during the rain, 
You can't see anything but one light. You got to, why? Because that's safety. If you keep your eye on that light, the pilot will land the, the plane safely. Plus, it will be rewarded by living another day. See, for us, we need to keep our eye on the goal, okay? We've got to keep our eyes set on who Christ is, on Christ's likeness, on pleasing Christ, knowing that someday we'll be standing before him. And, and in a world that has all this chatter, it is very easy to get your eye off the goal, right? Very, very easy. In this world of chatter and trinkets and all the glitz and everything else and all the the lusts and the sins and everything else, it's easy to get your eye off the goal. I trust that today that you have your eye on the goal, and if not, that you get your eye on the goal. Well, let's, let's break this apart again. Uh, let me read this for you. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9, and I'm going to go to the end of verse 11. And notice, he, he talked about keeping his eye on that which is unseen, remember uh, chapter 4, verse 18, on the things which are not seen, which are temporary, but the things which are not seen, which are eternal. He, he said that's what he kept his eye on. And then verses 5 to 8, he, he's been talking about death, that he would rather be with Christ. Oh, he's going to stay here to serve because it was more advantageous to the Christians that he stay for the time being, but he was looking to be with Christ. But the question would be this. See, if people were following his argument, they might say this. Oh, okay, I see, Paul. So what you're saying is you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. See, you're so wanting to be with Christ that you're just looking at this life and it's just a pain and you'll be here and you'll, you know, you'll endure it, but, but you're really not going to be much heavenly good. And he wants to straighten that out in verses 9 to 11. No, no, no. If I have my eyes set on eternity then I'm going to have huge impact here on this earth. And that's what he says. Look at verse 9. Therefore, and that's the transition. Therefore, if I really have my eyes set on eternity, on the unseen, on, on, uh, on heaven, therefore we make it our aim, or some of your versions say ambition, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in, in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your, well known in your consciences. So he, he, he transitions, he says, no, no, no. Therefore, if my, if, if, I, if my heart is in heaven, as it were, if my eyes, if I'm seeing the invisible, I'm going to have a huge impact on this earth. Because, again, my, I'm going to be pleasing Him. I'm going to be accomplishing His goals, His plans, his, uh, ministering to His people. So, let's look at this. First of all, Paul kept his eye on the chief goal. And again, we get that because it says, therefore, we, we make it our aim. That's the chief goal, the aim, the objective, the target. In fact, if you've ever counseled with me, this is usually one of the first verses I bring up. Uh, we're sitting in counseling, it might be marriage counseling, individual, but the question is this, who are you trying to please? And a lot of times I'll have you memorize that particular verse. Therefore we make it our aim, whether absent or present, to be pleasing to him. Why? Because it's very important to first of all establish, why do you want to change and grow through counseling? Why do you want to change and grow? Well, I want to have a better marriage. Okay, well, well yeah, but is that the highest goal? See, I just want to be happy. I want my life to be easy. Nope, not good goals. For one thing, sometimes God doesn't take you down the path of ease, right? He may not take you down the path of of comfort. He may not take you down the path of immediate uh, temporary uh, happiness. It might be really hard. God's Word may be asking you to do something that is very, very difficult in in the beginning. And it might even get harder and harder as time goes on. The question is, why are you here for counsel? And hopefully you you get to the point of saying, wait, wait, I'm here because I want to be pleasing to him. It might be hard, it might be uncomfortable, 
I may not even understand the entire process, but I want to know it is God's word and I want to be pleasing to him. Now, now the spirit of God can work in that person. See, we got we to gotta take this as our life. I think all of us need to take this as our life first. We need to be pleasing to him. And, and Paul is saying, listen, that's my chief goal. That's my aim or my ambition. Now, as soon as I use the word ambition, like out of the New American Standard, some might say, well, isn't ambition bad? Actually, that word used to be considered a bad word. If you were ambitious, it meant that was a, a negative characteristic of you. Now, nowadays, it's, it's somewhat positive, but sometimes ambition itself, like I went back to a Puritan, Thomas Brooks, and this is what he said about ambitious, ambition four or five hundred years ago. Ambition is a gilded misery, a secret poison, a hidden plague. The engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of envy, the origin of vices, the moth of holiness, the blinder of hearts, turning medicines into maladies and remedies into diseases. He didn't have much good to say about ambition. Now again, we would agree with that if we thought that he was talking about selfish ambition, right? I mean, again, there are people with blind ambition, we would call it. It causes people to compromise their convictions. By the way, as I'm saying this, think of politicians. Compromise their convictions, violate their beliefs, sacrifice their character. Why? For blind ambition, for power. No, sometimes it's self-centered, it's driven, it's ruthless, it's unprincipled. There's a lot of things that you can say. Sometimes people are ambitious. There are Christians who are ambitious. They have their own agenda, they're moving in their direction, but it has nothing to whatever I do to be pleasing to him. See, ambitious people can be driven people. They can be driven towards wealth and prestige and power for social prominence and popular acclaim, and you can go on and on. They are careless. They can hurt. In fact, they a lot of times destroy in the, in the wake of their path, as it were, because they're basically trying to domineer over people to get what they want. And, and I'm only veering because that's actually how the word originally came about. It was Our English word came from the Latin word amb- ambitio, which comes from a verb that literally means this, to go around, or to, this is more, to go in both directions simultaneously. The same direction. It was like a person that had two faces. One was facing this way and one was facing that way. At the same time. In other words, willing to do whatever it took to get the desired results. And in the Roman culture, it was used of politicians. Because they looked at politicians as those type of people who were willing to say whatever it took to this group and then this group and this group to get their vote. So it was looked upon negatively. And a number of people have seen that over the years. And I'll give you just one more quote. And again, we're going to be quickly going to the positive. But I want to point out that when it comes to being ambitious, it's not always good. Uh, there's been times in my own life I was so ambitious to do the Lord's work, I was willing, willing to run over people. Well, I'm, let me tell you right now, I'm not doing the Lord's work when I'm running over people. Because the Lord's work is people. Stephen Neal said this, quote, I am inclined to think that ambition in any ordinary sense of the term is nearly always sinful in ordinary men. I am certain that it is, in the Christian, it is always sinful, and that it is most inexcusable of all in the ordained minister, end quote. See, he saw it as total negative. And that was actually a quote out of Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. Well, let's just say that at times we can be ambitious for the wrong, wrong reason. In fact, Jeremiah 45 says this. Jeremiah 45, verse 5. But you are seeking great things for yourself. Do not seek them. See, God was speaking through the prophet. And he says, you're seeking great things for yourself. You're living for yourself. You're living selfishly. Do not seek them. So as we move from the negative, evil ambition, to 
godly ambition, let's just realize that at times Christians can fall into the evil ambition. Seeking things for yourself. Wanting to go in a certain direction. Even wanting to come for, let's say, as I used the illustration earlier, counsel, but doing it for a selfish reason. Uh, Going to church for a selfish reason. Serving the Lord in a uh, particular ministry for a selfish reason. No, we don't want to have selfishness. Uh, we don't want to be seeking great things for ourselves. What Paul said is, no, no, I make it my aim, whether present or absent. By the way, the present or absent goes back to verses 6 and 8, where he says, you know, I'm, if I'm present in body, I'm absent from the Lord. But if I'm going to be absent from body, I'll be present with the Lord. And, and, and what he's saying is, listen, I make it my goal whether I'm here in the body. I, if I'm here in the body, I want to be as, as fully committed to serving Christ as I will be in heaven. I, I want to have a full, whole heart ambition to serve him. So he made it his ambition uh, to be well-pleasing to him. The, the word aim or ambition literally is philos teme, which means... love, honor, which in this context means this, love what is honorable. He's going to love what is honorable. What do you mean? Well, he loves what Christ loves, what Christ wants, the direction that Christ wants for him. That's his aim. He loves what is honorable. And he's used that word a few other times. Like in Romans 15, it says, so I have made it my aim, now catch this, to preach the gospel. That's honorable, to preach the gospel. It was tough for Paul. Paul uh, people hated him for it. But he said, I've made it my aim, my goal, to preach the gospel. But let's take that, let's, that second part of this verse, to be well-pleasing to him, well-pleasing. Uriastos. Your, uh, Paul's passion, that's the word, Paul's passion for what was excellent and honorable. He, he wanted to be well-pleasing, not just pleasing, I mean, uh, excellently pleasing to him. He, he, he wanted to make sure that every piece of his life was actually pleasing to the Lord. And, you know, the more you think about that, that's a mindset. Uh, sometimes we think this, that, well, you know, it's, it's pleasing to the Lord when I'm praying. Uh, it's pre- pleasing to the Lord when I'm studying his word. Uh, it might be pleasing if I'm around other Christians talking about him. But, but when he talks about well-pleasing, he's saying all of life. That all of life, there is really for a Christian no secular. Every part of our life should be touched with, with uh, wanting to please Christ. And, and, and Now that gets exciting, especially if you're someone who, let's say, works 40 or 50 hours at work. Now think about this. You're working 40, 50, 60 hours at work. If you say, you know what, at work, it's secular. Christ doesn't care and I'm just surviving. That's a terrible way to look at that. Because, for one, it's unbiblical. Because we, we do gospel work. In other words, our work is the gospel, and every, every part of our life should be affected by the gospel, by, by the lordship of Christ. So, first of all, it's wrong. But the other thing is, I mean, it, it could be really where you start saying, well, you know, and I can, I can act any way I want at work because it's not part of serving Christ. And yet, again, every part of the Christian life. Wouldn't it be transforming if a person went from, it doesn't matter what I do for the 40 hours, 50 hours, and obviously not going to swear and stuff like that, but I mean, as far as I'm just surviving. Versus, no, no, I'm actually serving Christ for these 40 or 50 hours. See, when he says he makes it, his, his, uh, make it a, a, our aim to be pleasing to him, he's saying in the full 24 hours that I'm living. No, I'm sleeping, I understand that. But as far as your entire life can be pleasing to him, even what we call the mundane. And the more we get a hold of that, actually the more exciting it becomes. See, now you see opportunity for serving Christ even at work, even when you're having dinner or whatever else. You know, it's not just those few times of prayer and Bible study, and going to church, and worship, and listening to a message, yeah, that's obviously spiritual, but really our whole life should be considered that. So he said, I make it my, my goal. I am marked by a passion to please Christ. I'm, a, I'm like an athlete who, I'm not even so concerned about the, 
the uh, award, I'm concerned about pleasing the coach. Uh, he, say, he would say it like this, I'm, I'm like a soldier. I'm not even so concerned about capturing the hill as pleasing the general. I want to be pleasing to him. And he actually adds an emphasis, well-pleasing. Well-pleasing. If you want to see how, how uh, passionate he was, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is perhaps the best clearly articulated passage on how focused Paul was. And we've seen this a few other times, but just quickly we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now again, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were factious, they were judging others, they judged each other, they were ungodly. And Paul, quite honestly, was not exempt from this. See, they were just as brutal to the Apostle Paul. And if you, as you're reading 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you start realizing what they were attacking. They were merciless, these Corinthians, towards Paul. I mean, they were attacking his credentials as an apostle. They were attacking his ministry methods and how, you know, they didn't think he was, uh, he, he was like the other teachers and the other teachers were false teachers as far as his ministry methods. They were attacking his character and even the gospel he presented. I mean, it was a very hard situation. And here in, in Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5, he just basically steps back and he says, listen, but I want you to understand where my, where my eyes are set. Even though you have all these criticisms, I want you to understand me and my heart and who I'm really looking at. And so in verse 1 he says this, Let a man so consider us. Let, let the people, let, just understand you Corinthians, consider us as servants of Christ and stewardships of the mystery. And, and that word servant is hupertas, which is uh, under rowers. And again, you've heard of the, uh, the under rower that on a ship going across the Mediterranean there would be you know, they didn't have uh, mercury engines at that time. You, you had a row, and you had levels in the ship, and the under rowers were usually the last, the lowest, the lowest rowers in the ship, which meant anything that was above them dripped down on them, and they didn't have potty breaks. You just sat there. So it was the filthiest, darkest, dingiest uh, situation. To be an underrower. And Paul said, listen, just look at me as an underrower. Which is, is really great because sometimes you meet pastors and they want to be the top of the pile. And Paul would have said, I'm on the bottom of the pile. I'm just a servant. Not even, just an underrower. You can look at me like that. Christ looks at me differently, but you can look at me as an underrower. And moreover, it's required in stewards that what? One be found faithful, trustworthy, trustworthy. In other words, it, it's required of a steward of an underrower, two different words, two different thoughts, that you could rely on them. And Paul's defending the fact that he can be relied on, that his message, the gospel that he's preaching, it can be relied on. But then he gets into the, how he looks at himself. But with me, and there's an emphatic there, see, he puts himself, uh, the, the wording makes uh, with me the emphatic part of the, the sentence. But with me, it is a very, very small thing that I should be judged by you or a human court. Because they were judging him. They were trying to make him look and basically destroying his ministry. And he said, it's a very small thing. As I, I love this passage because I've gone back to it so many times to say, Lord, help me to have that type of thinking that though I love Alfred Almond Bible Church, help me to think this way, that my eyes would be kept on him. And I'm praying the same thing for you, that you would have this type of mentality, that really, it's not about people pleasing and the fear of man. See, he's just saying, but with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Now, he's not saying it like this, you know, and I don't give a rip what you think. I mean, he's not saying it with a belligerent attitude. It's not, he doesn't have a rebellious attitude here. He's just saying, listen, your opinion of me is not that important because you're a lower court. See, there's a court that's a lot higher than you, that's a lot more important than you, that was going to survive into eternity. And that's the court that I care to, to be pleasing to. So, you know, you're just too low of a court. 
whether you have deemed me to be noble. I mean, Paul would say this because remember in Corinthians he says, there are those that say, I am of Paul. You know, I'm of Apollos. You know, I'm of Paul, of Timothy. I mean, they had all these different little groupings. You might think I'm a group. You might think I'm the best thing since sliced bread. You know what? Even that opinion is so small. But then you may be one of those people that really hate me and hate my message. It's a small thing how you judge me. In fact, look at it. He goes on. I do not even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. Why? Because I tend to be biased towards me. <laughs> I have a tendency to be biased in my favor. So he said, I don't even. I don't even judge myself. The heart is deceitful and above all uh, heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. See, the point is, is this with people, there's no final lasting authority. There's no final judgment. They come and go. It's a lower court. And he says, Listen, I'm not I'm not that concerned how you look at me. For I know of nothing, verse four, against myself. I, I don't know of any sins, yet that that yet I am not justified by this. In other words, even though I have he says, There's no known sin in my life. But even with the fact that there's no known sin, I'm still not saying I'm justified by that. I could be deceived. I could give myself a good a good report, although I have a clean conscience, a pure conscience. He said that in a number of other passages. I have a good, clean conscience. But he who judges me is the Lord. Now, when he uses the word Lord, he uses the word kurios. Kurios, slave master mentality. See, the kurios is the master, the Lord. And so he's putting himself as he, Christ is master, I am slave. He said the same thing in Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be the doulos of Christ, the slave of Christ. That was why Paul had such endurance, because he didn't see himself... He, now let me say why. He saw himself as the slave of Christ. That's why he had endurance. When things got hard, he just looked at himself and he said, Well, I'm just a slave. Christ is the master, he's commanded me, and I go in that direction. Jesus, you remember he said in in Matthew 6, no one can serve what? Two masters. No one can serve, and the word serve there is is doula, slave. No slave can serve two masters. That's literally how Matthew 6.24. So you're putting up the master-slave relationship. Look at verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time. Stop passing judgment until the Lord comes. Now, we're going to be looking at that next verse. The Lord comes. That's where the bema happens. The bema, the judgment seat of Christ. Who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. See, I'm waiting for the day when Christ comes and he's going he's to give me the final verdict on my life. And that's what I'm serving towards, ministering for, I'm keeping my eye on that goal. See, if you keep your eye on a different goal than that, you will be like this. Because if you're trying to please people, depending on if you're pleasing them, you'll do certain things to please them. And it's very easy to be a people pleaser, right? It's very easy to fall into the fear of man. What do they think? See, Paul, that's, what I'm, that's why I came to this passage. Because Paul would say, you know what? It really doesn't matter what they think. Now, we can all say that, and I can say that, and you can say amen, but I'll tell you what, we have a hard time what people think, right? We want people to think well of us. You know, for the Apostle Paul, he had a steadiness in his walk with Christ. Why? Because he says, you know, it really doesn't matter. And he wasn't saying brashly, he just said, you know, I just know that you're a lower court. That when it's all said and done, your opinion has no eternal consequence, but when it comes to Christ, it has eternal consequence. He's the one I'm seeking to please. Do you see how that can actually transform? Let's say you're at work. If you're trying to just please the people around you, you know, get the promotion, whatever, I'm not saying you don't try to please your boss, I mean, but not a man pleaser. Eh, I mean, if that's what he wants me to do, that's what I'll do. But when your eyes are still set on Christ, there's eternal consequence with that. Eternal. Over and over in Scripture, it talks about being pleasing, acceptable. In fact, Romans 12, 2. We're told to be a living sacrifice. Renew your mind. Why? Because it's acceptable, well-pleasing to God. That's the same word. It's acceptable. We need to be well-pleasing. So whether or not we're present or absentee, because again, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, I'm sure some of the 
false teachers that were in the church, and some of the other people would say, okay, so you're so focused on heaven, you're not going to be any earthly good. He said, no, no. First thing, I want you to understand, my goal is to please Christ. Whether, obviously, if you're in heaven, you're continually pleasing Christ. But even if I'm on this earth, my heart is set so much on heaven that my eyes are set on the, on the Lord of heaven. My eyes are not set on people, it's on the Lord of heaven. And so his devotion, his passion was to serve and to please Christ. And that's the first, um, how he kept his eye on the chief goal. Well, let's go to the second thing that he keeps his eye on. That is on the final judgment. See, he goes from walking with Christ, that's verse 9, to now when he's going to stand before Christ. There's going to be a judgment day coming. There is a judgment day coming for each one of us. And this is where Paul kept his eye on the lasting prize. If I please him now, if you please him now, you get a reward then. Now, if you don't please Christ now and you keep your eyes on people and not the Lord, then as Corinthians chapter 3 says, that we build on this foundation, what? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and what? Stubble. By the way, all those things are good things. There's nothing evil in any of those things. But there's only three of those things that are going to be able to endure a fire. Right? I mean, if you put gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, put it all into a big pile, and then give me the match, because I like starting fires, and then you put gas and oil, because you've got to have both of those, and you get that fire really, really hot, come back after two hours, I mean, the wood, hay, and stubble is going to be gone. I mean, it's, wood is good. I mean, this is made out of wood, right? But it doesn't last. And, and what he's going to be getting at here in this passage is, you know what, there's a lot of things that we can be doing on this earth. And, and we're trying to build the foundation, but understand that in the end, it all has to go through the fire, and the fire is, is Christ introspecting it, all right, and inspecting it. Christ inspecting our work. And all that's going to go through, the, as it were, the eyes of the fire of Christ. And the gold, silver, and precious stones, those things that were done for him, those things that were done specifically to please him, will last. They'll endure the fire. But those things that wood, hay, and stubble, they're not bad, but actually he's going to use the word worthless. They're just not going to endure for eternity. Well, let's look at this. Really quickly, this is Paul telling us his greatest motivation. This was the Apostle Paul's, great, we already told you his greatest goal, pleasing to him. Now this is his greatest motivation. This is why he lived, because he knew someday he was going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so you see that in verse 10. And we will all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now again, first of all, I've got to identify what is the judgment seat of Christ. And I know there's going to be some disagreement with this. But I believe that the judgment seat of Christ is different than the great white throne. In the great white throne of Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, it talks about Christ being the judge, and that they would be judged according to their works. And at the end of, the, of verse 15, it says this, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. At the great white throne, the unsaved will be judged according to their works. By the way, the unsaved would be those who have never received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And because they've never been put under the blood of Christ, and and that Christ's blood has never paid for their sin, at the end, they will be judged and actually this, rewarded according to their evil works. And so I believe that there are actually levels of judgment in hell okay but the great white throne is different is a different judgment than this one this is called the bema seat and it just means um, steps judgment uh, we call it well it's the judgment seat of christ if you will i don't want to say it like that you have the great white throne that's the unsaved and then you have the judgment seat of christ that's what we're going to be looking at for a few minutes today and that's called the, the Bema, the Bema. I've heard it called the Bema seat. I, I'm not sure how to print. I always called it the Bema seat. The, the Bema 
is, a, is, is where we get the word judgment seat. Okay, that's, that's where we get the word bima. It literally means a place reached by steps. It was a raised platform on which the victorious athletes received their crown. Sometimes that's what they used the bima for. Uh, sometimes it was the conquering general would sit on the bima, the raised steps, and there would be a, you know, raised steps right here, and then a seat, and uh, judicial punishment would be meted out to the enemy. But it also would be used of the, uh, the judge, who in the athletic games would be sitting on the bima, and then the athletes would come by and receive their reward. That, I think, is how it's being used here. See, the athletes trained, they ran, they accomplished. I mean, we just went through the Olympics, right? And now they get their reward. And what they got was gold at our Olympics, gold, silver, and bronze, right? I mean, some of those events is like, wow. Did they have to train really hard to get there? I mean, they didn't like show up like the, you know, like three weeks before the Olympics. You know, I think I'm going to do the Olympics this time. I mean, they trained hour after hour, month after month, year after year. Do you think at times they didn't want to get up at 5.30 in the morning to train for those three hours before class and four hours after class? I mean, you know, the, the uh, sacrifice. Well, I mean, all that stuff is you can apply to the Christian life. There's a lot of sacrifice in the Christian life. Well, there's coming a day when our sacrifice will be rewarded. But again, let's go back to verse 9. If we did it for Christ, I think, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of activity done in the Christian church that's not for Christ. I think it's done out of guilt. It's done out of power. It's done out of selfish motivation. And it looks good, but it'll burn. I really do. I'm not saying you guys. I'm just, I'll put it on me. I know at times I've done that. But again, there's coming a day when it's truly been sacrificial for Jesus Christ. The reward's coming. The reward is coming. Let's look at the reward. It says, we must all appear. So the first, and these are the characteristics. The first is this, we will be judged. Actually, every person who has ever lived will be judged. They will either be judged if they're unbelievers at the great white throne or if they're believers at the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Christ. But every human being that has ever lived will be judged. We will be judged. That's a, that's a fearful thing. In fact, look at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I, th- I don't think he's talking about unsaved, getting them, getting them saved. I think in verse 11 he's saying, listen, understand that what I just said is true. And the word terror there is phobia. We get our word fear. It can also be mean, mean reverence. But the idea is this. Take it serious. Just take it serious. Don't, don't leave today. Yeah, yeah, another message. What, no, you will stand before Jesus Christ. If you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, he will be your judge that casts you into hell. Right? But if you've received him as your Lord and Savior, he will be the one who rewards you. But you will stand before Jesus Christ. All judgment has been given to the Father, right? Excuse me. The Father has all judgment, but in in John 5.22 says that the Father gave the judgment to whom? The Son. And so it's Jesus Christ. That's why we're talking about in Revelation, the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Because all judgment of humans and the earth, every, any judgment that happens is done by Christ. And we see a number of different judgments. The white throne, the bema seat, the judgment on the earth, the judgment through the tribulation. Everything's in Christ's hands. But we will be judged. Romans 14 says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All. Now, who's the all? Right here in this one, it's the church. It's the saved ones. Okay, no, no exceptions, no special deferments, no hiding, <laughs> no scheming, making ourselves look better than we are. We will all be judged. Number two, we will be judged lovingly. Now, I just used the word terror of the Lord, but understand that this is a loving judgment because notice, it's the judgment of Christ. 
I mean, it is Jesus Christ who knows us completely and loves us in spite of ourselves, okay? It is Christ, Christ who is our Savior. In fact, not only is he our Savior, but he's our brother. I go to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. When Christ saved you, if you were a believer in him, he has brought us into his family. So even though there's a nervousness, at least for me, as I approach this judgment, I want to remember that it's a loving judgment. Why? Because he's going to be rewarding us. Don't you like reward day? I mean, each one of you, when you get your check at the end of the week, that's reward day. Well, this is going to be the final reward. This is the time when, as we've been pleasing to him, we get rewarded for our efforts, for our sacrifice. So he's our savior, he's our brother, he loves us. Now again, we need to take it serious. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, I'm going to persuade you, live for him. Live for Christ. Know that we're going to stand before him. Make sure that as you serve externally, that the motivation is to be pleasing to him. Make sure it's not to please man. Oh, I'm going to show up and do this because if not, Ken's going to be upset with me. You know, Ken. Oh, John's good. Sometimes you, sometimes you don't come to church and you'll say to me, oh, I, didn't, I couldn't come to church. I had a family reunion or I had this game to go to. You almost like apologize to me. And I always think, don't apologize to me. It doesn't matter to me. It only matters to him. Apologize to him, right? Apologize to him. Hey, if you miss a family reunion, which is church, apologize to him. If you feel guilty, don't, don't apologize to me. I'm glad that I'm not the judge. See, we're standing before him. And, and I believe we should look forward to it. Again, there's a nervousness, there's an anticipation. It's like, uh, it's like doing really well uh, writing a uh, term paper and you're handing it in, but you know you did your very best and you know that the, the I's were dotted properly and T's crossed properly and, 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 and now you're ready to get the final and you've got a nervousness, but there's an anticipation. Because you know you did a really good job. You really feel like you did a really good job. I had one of my kids just graduate with a master's, and he just told me he had a 4.0. And I was like, really? Because <laughs> you know, I couldn't do that. But the point is, what? He worked really hard. If you work really hard, you should anticipate this day. Number three, we will be judged impartially. Impartially. A part of the exaltation of Christ is, is the right to manifest divine authority and judgment. See, he has divine authority, so it's going to be impartial. Why? Because there is no partiality with God, Romans 2 says. No partiality. So as we stand individually before the Lord Jesus Christ, there's not going to be any partiality. I'm not going to slip you in and oh, I'll give you a little bit more reward than you really deserve. No, it's going to be based on truth and reality. <laughs> Number four, we will be judged thoroughly. We must all appear. The word appear means to make visible, make clear. It literally means to be turned inside out. So it's like taking and, okay, now I'm going to show you what your real motivation was. It's going to be thorough. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes to whom we must give an account. I like what was said about George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield was a great preacher of a couple hundred years, 300 years ago. No, 200, I guess. But anyways, they were talking about him, and there was some who were, uh, you know, criticizing him, and he like any great preacher like such as him, he was always embroiled in some controversy. So there was people who loved him and there were people that hated him. But this is what he says. He said, I hope on my tombstone this is written. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. You know, George just said this. Listen, I'm not going to worry about what you think. Doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians 4? I'm not going to worry about what you think. He knows, and the great day will discover it. So again, we just got to wait for the judgment seat. Number five, we will be judged individually. Verse 10, the, the second part, that each one, 
Romans 10, uh, 14, 10 says that all, we will all stand. Each one of us shall give an account. 1 Corinthians 3, each one, each one, each one. I think it says three times in 1 Corinthians 3. Each one. The idea is this, that we stand individually. Oh, I, I thought the judgment of seat of Christ was going to be where all the angels were, are watching. No, it doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. Well, I thought, the, I, I thought the, it was going to be revealed because now everyone else that's in the church will be able to know what John Prince was like. It doesn't say that either. It's very clear. It's, there's no scriptural basis for that. It's going to be each one. Ed Phelps. Yes, Lord. Carl. <laughs> Carl Leatherson. Each one. I think, I think we each get individual attention by the Lord. And he's going to show us. He's going to turn us inside out. He's going to say, this is what your real motivation. This is, this is how you serve. And by the way, this revealing is a revealing not to him. He's omniscient. And since angels and I don't believe Christians are going to be there, who is it for? You. You. Each will personally discover the real verdict of his or her ministry, service, and motives. Each one of us will finally really know, were we really pleasing to him? And if you turn yourself inside out, <laughs> and your motivations and your service, your giving, your sacrifice, your, your, uh, your abilities, your spiritual gifts, and all the stuff that you did for him, I liked how Plummer said it. We shall not be judged in mass or in classes, but one by one in accordance with individual merit. That's pretty scary. I'm not going to be holding my wife's hand. She's not going to be holding my hand. We stand before him. But again, it's individually. And then finally, we will be judged graciously. Now, I want, because everything I've said, I've said a couple nice words along the way, right? Lovingly. He's our brother. He's our savior. I want you to see this, though. It's gracious. Because it says that each one may receive. Each one may receive. We stand before him, each one. But now he says each one will receive. There's not going to be anybody that walks away without a prize. Everybody, everybody in this judgment, every individual, every Christian who has been bought by the blood of Christ will walk away with a gift, as it were. You will receive, receive. That's, that's to me, is Grace. That each one may receive the things that are done in the body according to what has been done, both good and bad. Now again, we just got to look at those two words, good and bad. Well, good means good, inherently good. Good in quality, good in motivation. Makes sense. It was good. I mean, they served, they served for the right reason. They served out of 2 Corinthians 5.9, you know, that he made it our aim to be pleasing to him. I mean, those are good motivations. That's good service, and he got rewarded for it. But then look at the second word, or bad. Receive the things that are done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now the bad, he receives, but then Corinthians 3, like I was telling you, the fire comes along and burns it. It doesn't last. There's going to be some things that don't last. The word bad there does not mean evil, like kakos would. That's another Greek word. That means evil. Poneros means moral evil. That's not the word. It's phalos. Phalos. Worthless. Worthless. Remember what I said? Um, wood, hay, and stubble? That's not evil. It just won't endure. Wood, hay, and stubble won't endure. You, go, you put in the fire, and it's just going to be burned up. And that's the word that's being used here. There's going to be stuff that we have done in our life. It wasn't evil. By the way, sin is not going to be judged here. Because all our sin was taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. But here is this, by the way, it'd be blasphemous if it was sin that was being considered here. Because Christ has already taken care of it. It would be like double jeopardy. Oh, let's bring it back. No, no. Sin is not going to be, if it's sin, it's been taken care of. But here, these are good things. But some of the good things are going to be like, uh, gold, silver, and precious stones. They'll endure the fire. But there's going to be a lot of stuff, I believe, that's just burned up. Just burned up. It was good stuff. It wasn't evil. It just was worthless. 
The day I did this message was a couple days ago, and I was thinking about some of the worthless things. At night, that, at that particular night, I was watching the Andy Griffith show. I love Andy Griffith. You know that, right? Barney. I got to get a photo of Barney with, you know, drawing. Um, Post on my outside of my door. But worthless. Half hour, but it was worthless. There's no value. And oh, I mean, I'm sure it kind of, you know, I, I like to have a good laugh. But, but that's worthless. Uh, then I went for a walk around the AU campus. That was worthless. Well, wait a second here. I was enjoying the creation of God. And I had a message that I was listening to by MacArthur. I just happened to, you know, listen. And I was praising him for just not only nature, but just the truth that I was learning from that particular message. See, now all of a sudden it wasn't worthless. That's not worthless. That's, that's, that's looking at God and saying, thank you for being my father and my, my, the creator, and, and look at the beauty that you have. And it was so calm and, and um, uh, cool. Okay, it was great. See, So you can take something that could be worthless and transform it into something that can be pleasing to him. But again, it takes effort. Uh, Some of you went to the Bills game yesterday. Worthless. Ah, but if you connected with people and there was lives connecting instead of just worrying about the ball getting across the line, then now that becomes very valuable. I'm not saying it's not right to watch a game. I'm just saying you want it to go through the fire. Right? So, I mean, by the way, why would a church fellowship committee put together a football game in the first place and basically spend some money of, of the churches to even promote it? Why would they do that? Because they want to see lives of Christians interconnected. So hopefully that's what happened at the Bills game. Just like at the, what did we do? The uh, canoe trip. And then also, what was the other thing? Oh, the baseball game. Samson. Samson, Right. I mean, why do fellowship committees do things? Because we are hoping for connection of lives, right? Right, John? Amen? So we want to connect with life. So, so that's the good or the bad. The bad is not evil. It just can be worthless. But we've got to make sure, hey, make sure that you don't work 40 hours a week, uh, 48, hour, or 48 weeks a year, let's say, at your business, and it becomes worthless. Make sure that you are serving Jesus Christ at work, right? Because otherwise, you just earned a paycheck. You didn't earn anything for eternity. No, we want to go for eternity. Because that's the received. Received means to receive back what is due. That's the word received. That each one may receive what? Back what is due. What do you mean back what is due? Because Christ has already said, listen, if you serve me, I will reward you. It says in, I think it's Revelation 22, he comes and his reward is with him. It's not just talking about people. He's saying he is coming to reward his own. He's promised over and over in Scripture that he is going to reward his own. So this is the time that we are rewarded. I can give you an example. Uh, think of a father who looks at a six-year-old boy, seven, uh, let's say a ten-year-old boy. And he says, listen, son, I've got an airplane. And I would love to take you for a trip in my airplane you know, up in the skies. I remember years ago, I went with Kevin Weeks on an airplane ride. I'd never do that again. But the point, no, he was good. He was good. Young kid, but yeah. Anyways, and the kid, but all he had to do was he had to consistently mow the lawn six weeks in a row. And so the boy was all excited about taking the airplane ride, but the father was serious. You don't mow the lawn, I don't take you on the airplane ride because I want to teach you responsibility. First week he did it right, the second week, the third week. By the fourth week he was getting tired. And he skipped the one week, the fourth week. The fifth week he did just part of the lawn, just mowed the weeds, you get the point. And then the final week he said, forget it, I'm not going to do it. Finally the accounting day comes, uh, the father sits down with the boy and with sadness and his tone and sadness in his eyes, he said, I can't, I can't reward you. I, re- I want to reward you but you weren't faithful. I think that's how it is with the Lord. He wants to reward us, but he says, but again, you, you have to do it right. You have, to, you, you have to live for me here. I want to reward you, but you have to live for me here. Not anger. There might be sadness. I think on that day it says tears. I think there's going to be tears by Christians, and I think part of the tears is this. 
on the day that we stand before him, I think he's going to show us the if-onlys. The what-ifs. This is what you could have had. In fact, I think that's the reason there's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. I think it's all that stuff. It's all the service. But then he says, but now I'm going to show you what you did for me, not for others. And it goes through the fire, and I think that's where the tears come. If only I had done it. See, it looks so good, but I wasn't doing it truly for the Lord. So what are the lessons we learned? Just quickly. That the person you are today will determine and impact the rewards you will receive tomorrow. Tomorrow being eternity. Who you are today will determine and impact what you receive for eternity. That's the first big lesson. See, our life today impacts our eternity. Number two, every day we live is either a loss or a gain as far as our future judgment. It's a loss or a gain. So if you get depressed and you say, oh, I haven't been living for Jesus Christ, start today. Because every day is a loss or a gain. Every day you make the choice, am I serving him or others? Myself. Number three, rewards are not based on results or size of ministry. Keyword: faithful. See, some of you have a lot, a lot of ability, a lot of time, a lot of wealth. Some of you have just the opposite of that. It's not about the amount. It's about the faithfulness of what God has given to you. Okay? Faithfulness. That's the issue. Opportunity. What has God given you as an opportunity? How have you taken it? That's number three. And number four is this. Our reward, and I want you to get this, I think will be surprisingly uh, a surprising result. I think our reward will be a surprising result. Why? Because I, it says in Ephesians 3, the power that works in us, in us. The power that works in us. I think when it's all said and done, I really do believe this in my own life. I think it's going to be, Lord, and then you go through the fire. Oh, and there will be the, the tears. But when it's all said and done, it's going to be a surprise on how much really was left. Now catch this. God chose us before the foundation of the world. His purpose is to glorify himself through you. He wants you to make it to the end. Glorification. And you know what glorifies him? To see you rewarded. See, that glorifies him. That's not just for us, that's for him. Because he's saying, look it, I took that <laughs> and I made that. And throughout eternity, we're going to be able to worship and praise him. And I think our capacity to worship and praise him is the reward. And every time we do, it is going to be pointing to him. Look at who he is. Because I was just a broken, sinful, wicked vessel. And look at what he did for me for all of eternity. So I think when it's all said and done, the reward will be surprising to us how much is actually left. So though this needs to have a seriousness to it, terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I trust it could be very, very encouraging. Lord, you want me to succeed. You want me to be victorious. Why? Because it glorifies you. Let's stand. I I would just close with the question. I, I think this would be appropriate for any activity you do. Why do I do what I do? Why? The big why, that's motivation. Why? Why do I do it? Why do I go to work? I want a paycheck. Ah, that's that's sub. That's sub Christian. Uh, why do you have children and raising them uh, to be obedient? Well, why do you want to raise children? Well, because I just want, I, want, I, I don't want to uh, fail as a parent and, and they, they uh, bring a blight on my family. No, that's sub-Christian. No, that's not why we raise children. It's for his honor and glory. Uh, why do we give? Why do we serve? Uh, why, why do I work out <laughs> some? Uh, why do I uh, go to church? Why do I listen to me? Why do I listen to you? Why, you know, why do we do everything? Why? Ask why. Is it truly? We make it our aim to be pleasing to him. We make it our aim. We make it our goal. Our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's my master. If you can walk like that, then you're setting up for yourself treasures in heaven that are good, that will endure the flame of his eyes. Right? 
So why do you do what you do? And throughout this week, I'd encourage you, every time you're doing a different activity, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Is it truly for him? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of it. We know that that we are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday, either as judged as an unbeliever and thrown into hell. And Lord, I pray that if there's any unbeliever here, anyone that has never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, today might be their day of salvation. They might turn to Christ and ask him to forgive their sins and that they would be made part of your family. Lord, we know as believers we're going to stand before Christ. And Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom by your Spirit so that we might be able to ask that question, why do I do what I do? And Lord, that we might truly be serving Christ and seeking to please Him in everything we do. Give us the wisdom to understand our motivations and also the ability to change and grow so that if, they're not, if our motivation right now is not to serve Christ, that we would grow to the point that we are serving Him. And again, we look forward to that day of being with you and be, be rewarded by you. In Jesus' name, amen.